Today on the John Ankerberg Show, what scientific evidence for the existence of God comes from our own human body? As we saw last week, there are trillions of cells in our body, and the DNA molecule in each cell has over three billion instructions for building the proteins in our cells, amino acid by amino acid, so that they will be put together in the right order to keep us alive. My guest today, Dr. Stephen Meyer, wondered if intelligent design was the only explanation possible to explain what scientists were seeing in the digital code of DNA. Meyer was amazed to find out that Charles Darwin and Charles Lyell had answered this question a long time ago in their own books. Meyer asked, what is the cause now in operation that explains the origin of digital code? And in essence, Darwin and Lyell said, if you want to decide what explanation best explains something in the remote past, you want to invoke a cause which is known in our present experience to be able to produce the effect in question. This made sense to Meyer because Bill Gates often said, DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than any we've ever seen. So what is the cause that we see in our present experience that produces digital code? There is only one. That information comes from an intelligent designer. And when thinking about the human body, the scientific evidence implies the existence of an intelligent designer, namely God. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Meyer, who received his PhD in the philosophy of science from Cambridge University in England, and has written two best-selling books, Signature in the Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design, and his latest book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, both best-selling, award-winning books. We invite you to join us for this special edition of The John Ankerberg Show. Welcome to our program. I am John Ankerberg, and my guest today is philosopher of science, Dr. Stephen Meyer, who received his PhD from Cambridge University in England. And Dr. Meyer has written several important books about scientific evidence for intelligent design. And they include Signature in the Cell, DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design, a fantastic award-winning book, bestseller. Darwin's Doubt was the second one, this blue the minds of scientists across the country. Darwin's Doubt, the Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design. Talks about, you know, what happened at the Cambrian explosion. And now the most recent one is the return of the God Hypothesis. Three scientific discoveries that revealed the mind behind the universe. This is a USA Today national bestseller. And uh, Stephen, in your book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, I've got right here, looks like this, details three scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. And folks, if you want to know the latest of what's going on in science, you need to get this book. I've got it, read it three, four times, got every sentence almost underlined. I got notes in it, and I got arrows and circled words in it. And, uh, and I'm, it looks like hieroglyphics in there by the time I got done. I'm just saying it tells you the answers to the questions. If you've got a thinking mind, 
that you'll want to know. It gives you the information. So I really recommend that book. But in earlier episodes of this series, you showed us how modern science was fueled by Judeo-Christian thought. People don't know that. But how the God hypotheses that we did have during the 15th, 16th, 17th century, how the God hypothesis fell out of favor in the 19th century with the ideas of figures like Darwin, Marx, and Freud. But then you explain the God hypothesis is back as a valid hypothesis to explain the origin of life. And today we're continuing our discussion of this third one, the discovery of digital information encoded in DNA. We've got DNA right behind you. Can you quickly review with us what James Watson and Francis Crick discovered in the 1950s that would revolutionize molecular biology? And folks, I want you to know that in every one of you, you've got millions of cells, and every one of them have what we've got on the screen right behind you and what we're going to be talking about today. So this concerns you. Stephen? Well, right. Uh, Watson and Crick made a striking discovery in 1953, which is that they were able to elucidate the structure of the DNA molecule. By that time, many scientists were suspecting that DNA had something to do with the transmission of information or hereditary information, and Watson and Crick were able to figure out what DNA, what it looked like, how it was put together, and that suggested that it was an information-carrying molecule. There's a lot of information on a DNA molecule. Explain what is called the sequence hypothesis. Yeah, so Francis Crick formulated this idea of the sequence hypothesis in 1958, and the basic idea was that uh, the, the chemical subunits along the spine of the DNA are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written language, or digital characters like the zeros and ones in a section of software, which is to say what gives those parts of the DNA and the DNA molecule as a whole its function, its ability to direct the construction of proteins, is not anything about the physical properties of the, the, the chemical parts of DNA per se, but rather it's their arrangement, their specific arrangement in accord with an independent symbol convention, which was later discovered and is now known as the genetic code. So you've got a genetic text that is translated by a genetic code. And what was actually discovered was a complex information storage transmission and processing system inside every living cell of every living organism. The thing about the information in DNA is that the arrangement of those bases, those nucleotide bases, the chemical subunits, is critical to function. So when we think about DNA, we don't just have a complex arrangement of characters or a random arrangement of characters. What we have is a complex arrangement. It's not something where you have repetition of the same characters over and over again, like a mantra or, or like a crystal of salt where you have NaCl, NaCl. But instead what you have is a very irregular arrangement, a complex arrangement, which is nevertheless highly specific in order to perform a function. So in the information sciences, we make a distinction between complex sequences, which would be kind of a random gibberish, and specified complex sequences, which is what we have in DNA. So it's a very special kind of information that we associate with only two other things in all of human experience. One is written language, and the other is machine code or digital code. And so we have the same kind of information in DNA, which in our experience always points to a designing intelligence. Bill Gates has said that DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. And he's absolutely right. 
But software comes from a programmer, and written text comes from writers. And so when we find this type of information, known as specified complexity, inside a living cell, we're very justified in inferring that a designing agent played a role. Yeah, everybody out there's got a computer. If somebody comes over and says, hey, let me just kind of dink around with your uh, code, and they change it a little bit, what would you say to that? You well, say, no way. It doesn't work. I ask this question hypothetically when I give talks at universities, and programmers always laugh. You know, If you start changing the arrangement of, of a functioning <laughs> section of, of, of software by chance, your computer will not will, work. Will you build a new program, or will you destroy the function? And you will destroy the function of the existing code long before you ever get to a new program or operating system. Right. All right. In our last episode, uh, you explained why the presence of this digital code in DNA suggests intelligent design. That's what you just said again. But there have been other attempts to explain the origin of information. Okay, where did it come from? What are these other explanations? There's a famous book that was written by Jacques Monod, one of the founders of what's now called the Molecular Biological Revolution. He worked at the same time with Watson and Crick and others. And the book was titled Chance and Necessity. And Monod's point was, that if you're going to be a scientist, you need to explain things by reference either to chance or random processes on the one hand, or by reference to natural laws, or what he called necessity, the idea of if you drop a ball, it will always fall by necessity according to the law of gravity. So chance, necessity, or the combination of the two is what scientists have in their toolkit, he argued. And the attempts to explain the origin of the information necessary to produce the first life have fallen in one of those three buckets, if you will, either chance explanations, those by reference to natural laws, or those by reference to the combination of the two. And the first approach that was taken by origin of life researchers in the 1950s is they began to first appreciate the complexity of the cell and the information-bearing properties of DNA was the, the, the brute chance approach. And this was the idea that, well, you, know, you have a bunch of chemicals floating around in a prebiotic ocean or a prebiotic soup, and they start just knocking into each other and binding to one another, and eventually you get a DNA molecule with all the information for building proteins. But when people started doing the calculations on exactly how likely something like that would be, they realized that this wasn't plausible at all. And the origin of life researchers themselves rejected chance uh, within a very few years. There was just too much information, and that made the formation of a functional DNA molecule too improbable, even taking into account the billions of years we've had in the history of, of the universe. So that approach fell by the wayside very quickly. Um, and then, of course, people have tried, tried other approaches as, as yeah. well. So first of all, chance can't do it, can't explain where we get this information. Go to the next one, and that is, can natural selection overcome these odds? And does that explain the origin of life? Before we move on, I just remembered I have a, an illustration that okay. people will get as to why the chance thing doesn't work. All right. I used to do this with my students in class when I was a college professor. I'd walk around the room with a bag of Scrabble letters and ask them to pick them out at random, and they'd go right on the board whatever letter they got. And I tried to make it clear. We were illustrating the, the lack of causal power of chance. And almost always you get a long sequence of gibberish. But occasionally you get uh, that students would come up with, by chance, something like cat or an or some very short two or three letter word. And then they'd kind of start teasing me like, aha, we proved you wrong. But I would always win that argument 
And the way I do it is I just let them continue to choose letters. Point being that if you need only a little tiny bit of information, you can get that by chance. But if you need a lot of information, if you need uh, hundreds or thousands or even billions of nucleotide bases arranged pro uh, in a precise way, that's not going to rise by chance alone. And, and Origin of Life researchers have recognized this and moved on. All right, so if chance can't get us to where we want to go to, how about natural selection? Can that help overcome the odds? And doesn't that explain the origin of life? Well, this was another early idea about how to explain the origin of the information needed to build the first life. And it was the idea that, well, maybe natural selection, Darwin's process of sifting naturally uh, between combinations that are going to give survival value and those that are not, maybe that process of natural selection can help create the information needed to build the first cell. But a very obvious problem emerged very quickly as people began to think about this. And I've got a slide that sort of shows this, that natural selection depends upon differential reproduction of already living organisms. And we're trying to explain the origin of the first life, so right away that kind of ought to raise a red flag. If natural selection only works once you've got living organisms that can copy themselves, then we're kind of begging the question because we want to explain where the first organism came from. But if you go even deeper, natural selection depends upon information-rich DNA molecules and their ability to copy themselves. But what are we trying to explain when we explain the origin of life? We're trying to explain the origin of information-rich DNA molecules. And DNA replication also depends upon protein molecules, and we're trying to explain their origin as well. So if you invoke natural selection, you're invoking a process, namely, this, the ability of DNA to copy itself, which presupposes the very thing you're trying to explain, which is information-rich DNA and proteins. So this would be a little like the uh, absent-minded philosopher of science, who used to be a professor, who uh, would walk home from, from class, trip and fall in a hole, and then realize, gee, I, to get out of the hole, I need a ladder. But, oh, I, get, I know how I can get the ladder. I'll, I'll climb out of the big hole, go get the ladder, jump back in, and then climb out. Well, it, begs the question is, how does the professor get out of the big hole without the ladder? And it, this is the kind of problem that, uh, that prebiotic, theories of prebiotic natural selection have run into. One Nobel laureate, Christian de Duve, uh, said that, the, that these theories have a problem, that theories of prebiotic natural selection uh, need information, which implies they have to presuppose the very thing that needs to be explained in the first place. So these theories are also kind of a non-starter. There's a, another version of prebiotic natural selection called the RNA world, the idea that the first life arose from self-replicating RNA molecules. But as I've shown in my book, Signature in the Cell, those RNA molecules can only copy themselves if they too have lots of information to start with. And so even that scenario begs the question as to the origin of the information necessary to get a primitive replicator going. We've got two down, let's go to the third one that's been proposed. What about the laws of nature? Could life, when you look at that uh, DNA cell, could life have arisen through a law-like process of self-organization? Excellent question. This has been where a lot of the action has taken place in what's called uh, chemical evolutionary theory or um, origin of life research. And there was a very specific proposal suggesting that the information in the DNA molecule might have arisen because of the forces of attraction between the individual subunits of the DNA. And similarly, the proteins might have originated 
as the result of forces of attraction between the amino acids that form the long chains that fold up into the proteins. This idea was first proposed by a scientist named Dean Kenyon and his colleague Gary Steinman. And Kenyon had written the best-selling book that everybody had accepted. Biochemical Predestination was the best-selling advanced graduate-level text on the origin of life throughout the 1970s and early 80s. And so you were interested in hearing him, and he was speaking at this conference, so he got up there and you were shocked at what he I said. I was blown away because, you know, he was a, a leading figure in the field, and right. he announced that not just that he had questions about the general approach of the field, but his own theory. And Here's what he came to realize, is that, that the DNA molecule does not lend itself to this kind of explanation. There are molecules that self-organize by mutual attraction. If we think of a crystal of salt, sodium has a plus charge, chlorine has a minus charge, this is NaCl, and you get this nice regular crystalline structure that arises because of self-organizational properties. But DNA, as we said earlier, doesn't have a nice repetitive structure. It's not AG, 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 AG. It's a highly complex arrangement of these characters. And if you look at the molecule, what you see is that this depicts what's called the structural formula for DNA. And you notice you got little, you got the pentagons and the circles. That's what's called the sugar phosphate backbone along the outside of the molecule. And then you have the ACs, Gs, and Ts along the interior. And that's the message-bearing axis of the molecule. But notice that what connects all of these subunits are little sticks, and those represent chemical bonds. And notice in the DNA, there are no sticks connecting the A's, C's, G's, and T's. That means there's no chemical interaction between them that could be invoked to explain the sequential arrangement of those, those information-bearing subunits. Right. So I have a, a visual analogy that might get this across in case the chemistry is a little, <laughs> a little heavy. Um, I'm pandering to my host here. John Ankerberg rocks, right? <laughs> now, this is a magnetic chalkboard. And the, in the analogy, visual analogy, the magnetic chalkboard is like the, the sugar phosphate backbone in the, in the molecule. It's the medium upon which the message is inscribed. But then there is also a message inscribed on the, on the, on the medium, and that is John Ankerberg rocks. But what's responsible for the, the, the letters sticking is a, is, a, is a bond, a physical bond, in this case a magnetic attraction, in the case of the, the DNA, a bond called an N-glycosidic bond. So there's a force of chemical attraction that explains why the letters stick to the medium. But notice, we wouldn't want to say that the magnetic letters are responsible for the information in this, in this message. That comes from outside the system. It has an exogenous source, as one scientist puts it. In other words, I arranged the letters to, uh, to, to spell this message. It came from a mind. And I can show that the mag magnetism isn't responsible for the message because I can rearrange these letters. We still got all those magnetic forces at work, but now they don't spell a message. Magnetism isn't the explanation for the information. That comes from someplace else. And what we have in DNA is a true message-bearing system where the, the chemistry is not responsible for the sequential arrangement of the characters that convey the message. And Kenyon realized this and realized that, therefore, there wasn't a self-organizational chemical law that was responsible for the information. It must be coming from someplace else. I remember when the first time we met, you were, you were working on your graduate work and you were going up the ladder and you were coming to the conclusion, with all of these things being knocked down, that you were saying, I think we can make intelligent design into a scientific discovery. Why did you believe that intelligent design was needed to explain what you were seeing. Well, I encountered Professor Kenyon at a conference when I was early in my scientific career, and a colleague of his uh, named Charles Thaxon, who had just written a book titled The Mystery of Life's Origin. 
And Thaxon, in that book, detailed many of the kinds of problems that we've been talking about with the attempt to explain the origin of information necessary to build the first living cell. And he, in an epilogue to that book, floated the idea that with the information-bearing properties of DNA, we were, we were seeing evidence of what he called an intelligent cause, because we know intuitively that information's a mind product. And so a year later, I set off to Cambridge to begin work on, in my graduate work, and I eventually did a PhD on origin of life biology. And while I was doing that work, I was always thinking about whether or not this idea of intelligent design could be developed into a rigorous scientific argument. And oddly, it was another Charles that really helped me crack this nut, because Charles Darwin, in The Origin of Species, used a very special method of scientific reasoning known as inference to the best explanation. This is very interesting. And it was crucial for scientists trying to reconstruct events in the remote past, because we don't get to replicate events in the laboratory if we're talking about the origin of life or the origin of the Cambrian animals or something like that. So we've got to use detective-style reasoning to figure out what happened and what caused those events to happen. The idea of inference to the best explanation is that you infer that cause which, if true, would best explain the phenomena in question. But that raised the question, what does it mean to be a best explanation? And Darwin had a mentor as well, and his name also was Charles, and that was Charles Lyell. And one day I was reading the title page of his famous book on the principles of geology, being in the subtitle, long boring Victorian subtitle, being an attempt to explain the former changes of the Earth's surface by reference to causes now in operation. And when I came across that phrase, which was crucial to Lyell and Darwin's whole method, a light went on for me because I asked myself a question. What is the cause now in operation that explains the origin of digital code? Their idea was that if you want to decide what explanation best explains something in the remote past, you want to invoke a cause which is known in our present experience to be able to produce the effect in question. Makes perfect sense. So what's the cause that we see in our present experience that produces digital code? And I realized that there was only one. Chance didn't do it, necessity didn't do it, chance plus necessity didn't do it, but we do know of a cause that produces information, and that cause is intelligence or mind. And so when you think on that, the quote we've cited a few times from Bill Gates, DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than any we've ever created, that's highly suggestive because we know from our uniform and repeated experience, from our knowledge of causes in operation, that there's one cause that produces digital information, and that is intelligence. In fact, whenever we see information, again, whenever we see it, it always comes from a mind, not a material process. Whether we're talking about computer code, or an alphabetic text, or a hieroglyphic inscription, or the information we embed in radio signals, it always comes from a mind. So using Darwin's method of reasoning, his inference to the best explanation method, I concluded that the best explanation for the origin of information necessary to produce the first cell is not chance or necessity, physical chemical necessity, or the combination of the two, but instead it's intelligent design. And that's a conclusion that's based on our uniform and repeated experience, the basis of all scientific reasoning. And in fact, the twist here is that I actually use Darwin's method of reasoning to make the argument for intelligent design. Yeah, and to actually to deny his own theory of Darwinian evolution. I eventually went on to challenge Darwinism, but initially I applied this just to the question of the origin of life and the information necessary to, to build it. All right, in our next episode, we're gonna look at another mystery that Charles Darwin could not explain, the origin of complex 
animal life. We've been talking about human beings, but we're going to talk about the vast amount of animals that have been on the earth. Are biological evolutionary processes creative enough and fast enough to produce the first forms of animal life and all subsequent explosions of new life forms throughout the history of life? Or is there a more satisfying explanation? We're going to talk about the Cambrian explosion to start with next week. Come back next week and we'll show you more, folks. Thanks for joining us. But stay tuned. i got a personal word for you in just a moment. Stay tuned. John will be right back. Our goal is to present the evidence for the gospel worldwide and to encourage Christians in their walk with the Lord. This program is sponsored by the John Ankerberg Show Ministries and is made possible by the grace of God and your faithful prayers and gifts.